Greetings, you mangy mutts, and get out your doggy bowls, because you're going to lap up this episode. I'm Rob Basercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. I am so stoked for this, because I think we might have the best movies we've ever recorded on this podcast here today. (laughs) I know. I know. I'm so stoked. I had, like, honestly, my week just got so much better because I was able to watch and research these movies. I was so excited. And my wife, like, after we watched the first of these movies, turned to me and she goes, I'm just so proud of you, Rob. You just have such good taste. And I'm so lucky to be in a relationship with you. (laughs) That's so (laughs) weird because my boyfriend said the same thing to me. He was like, how do you have such cool friends who know such cool things? I know. My wife even bought me a onesie. What? Unfortunately, it didn't have a butt flap. They don't sell those very often, but. I'm determined to find one. <laughs> How drunk did you get last night when you watched one of the films? Uh, like three beers, not not overly. I was so I sad. I had to be up this morning. <laughs> yeah, we we definitely need to do some more drinking sessions where we watch movies like this. I know, but then it turns into <laughs> our Leprechaun episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah. We can't really do that for movies that we're covering. <laughs> I think we got to get into it because I think our audience is so excited. They got their doggy bowls in front of them and their tongues are in them. What an image. But before we get going, please follow us and like us on social media at at Cadaver Dogs Pod. That's at Cadaver Dogs Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Yeah, I also very much want to hear other people's bone ratings of these movies. I'm I'm very curious. So tweet at us. Devin Shepard, why don't you tell us about the first film? I'm like really excited here. Hollywood, 1950s. A widower mourns the recent death of his wife. He walks into his yard, picks a single flower, and walks in front of a vehicle. Later at his funeral, a couple walks through the graveyard when bright lights flash. What was that? Were those lights coming from the sky? Suddenly, the man's wife appears before them and they scream. A police inspector is later called to investigate the incident. But he too befalls a sad fate after seeing lights again in the sky. But at this point, there is no doubt. These are aliens. We learn aliens have been coming to our planet for years, but the government has been hiding their tracks. Clearly, they are here as a threat, and we must fight them off with guns. But the aliens are actually here to save us. To save us from creating a weapon worse than the atom bomb. A weapon that would destroy the universe. Unfortunately, it's too late. We have proven we don't want their help, so they have decided to destroy the human race before it destroys everything else. By enacting Plan 9. What is Plan 9? The aliens will resurrect the human dead. Big surprise, the humans fight back and send the aliens to their fiery doom, which might as well be our own. This is Plan 9 from Outer Space, produced, written, directed, and edited by Edward D. Wood Jr. Nice. Very nice. So did you guys know Bella Lugosi is in this? <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you said that. So the story goes that Bella Lugosi died before this movie was being made, and they just had a bunch of stock footage of him kind of like prancing around a graveyard dressed as a vampire. But <laughs> even cooler, a lot of the other scenes wasn't Bella Lugosi, but Ed Wood's wife's chiropractor. Oh, yeah, I know. And I don't think he was even credited. Yeah, and it's so cool, too, because I think he was like, this is like one of the very, very early ones, if not the first, like, fake Shemp 
which is when they have um, body doubles as like dead actors replacements in movies. Yeah, one of my favorites is when uh, Russell Crowe was in a Gladiator and Oliver Reed died while they were on like hiatus. And they had so many more scenes to shoot with this guy. He was like Maximus or whatever the fuck his name was, like mentor or some shit. But he was dead. So they just like put a mannequin in the background for a bunch of scenes. Aww. Well, you can't replace Oliver Reed. He's like the coolest motherfucker in the world next to Bell Lugosi. Whose replacement was named Tom Mason. I feel like there were so many artistic filmmaking choices that happened in this film that were like some of the earliest things. So like the fake Shemp, but also the use of stock footage. Was this not like an early use of stock footage in an independent film to like heighten its production value? I don't know if calling it stock footage is necessarily accurate. It is still stuff that was shot by Ed Wood with Bela Lugosi it, uh, before having the funds for Plan 9. He rose, I think, just $900 was all he could get. So he just did this footage with Bela Lugosi, the graveyard stuff, uh, the house scene. Uh, which is a really beautiful scene, by the way. It is really beautiful. Yeah, no, and that stuff is gorgeous. And I I love that he repurposed that footage that he did with Bella. But um, I'm specifically talking about like the war footage. Um, Edward did not. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, okay, fair. I'm pretty sure stock footage had been used in other films. Uh, I just don't know off the top of my head. But there were like a lot of really interesting production design decisions in this movie. And I think they just like increased the value exponentially. I'm thinking of like the cockpit scene. So the way they did it was they just had a board. They put a sheet in front of it. They didn't build a cockpit. And it's like, I would have never known. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. They also used cardboard for a lot of the uh, gravestones, which is just awesome. Yeah, I think there's one part in it where someone actually knocks it over, and if you were looking for it, you could tell that was cardboard, but nobody ever notices. And Edward knew no one noticed. I didn't notice. He, he, he understands that it's about the big picture. Exactly. Movies are never about the small details. They're all about the big picture. And Plan 9, what has a bigger picture than that? Oh my gosh. I, there are aliens, there are wars, there are pilots, there are cops, there are vampires or ghouls or zombies or whatever the fuck you want to call them. There's so many cool things. What a brave decision to make the aliens look exactly like people. I mean, that way we knew that they were judging us from like a similar standpoint rather than if they looked like crazy antenna wielding green guys, like we wouldn't have believed that they would have had the understanding to know that nuclear power or whatever that next power we were going to develop was so dangerous. Like that way we could empathize with the aliens. Exactly. They had a makeup artist, Harry Thomas, who was uh, supposed to be doing all this makeup and he had a whole plan. He had all these sketches of like very sci-fi-esque aliens. Um, but Ed Wood said, well, actually, I think um, we don't need to go over the top with it. We want to be able to empathize with the aliens. So he scaled it back. It also saved them a lot of money, which is always helpful in independent film. Another brilliant choice. Oh, and can we talk about the lighting design? The simple choices that he made, especially through just like the flashing lights to show the huge ship or like our belief that there is a huge ship flying over us and just like the way that people reacted to something that wasn't that we didn't see that wasn't there. But like we got the sense that it was this amazing, large UFO. <laughs> the UFOs do look great. I'll give you that. I really love the UFOs in this. And I love how the cop is like, I heard a UFO, didn't you? And he's like, what? And he goes, didn't you know that sometimes UFOs don't have flashing lights? The guy's like, well, that solves it. There really is like a brilliant dialogue throughout this entire film. And 
Uh, one of my favorite actresses, Vampira, Mila Nermi, who's awesome. She said that the script was like kind of daunting. It was intimidating. In fact, she couldn't say the lines because she was a little bit afraid. There was enough time to rehearse, unfortunately, because of the budget. So between her and Ed Wood, they came up with like the great idea of maybe less is more. So she just didn't say anything. And it really adds to the entire atmosphere of the picture and the terror, the shock and terror, if you will. Especially because, like, Tom Mason, who's playing opposite her, obviously can't say anything either, since if he did, then you would know he's not Bela Lugosi. So it works that they're both just mute throughout the film. And then it plays up the idea of zombies. Is it is this where the mute zombie was invented? No, I think uh, White Zombie had been out at this point in time. Definitely, because, because Bela Lugosi Bella, was obviously yeah. in it, and he's alive. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and, and I think also... In antiquity, like vampires were kind of mindless zombies. We and we had this discussion. Where what episode did we discuss this of like vampires versus zombies? We had a lengthy discussion about this. Uh was it Nightmare City? Yeah, Nightmare City. It was Nightmare City, because they mentioned vampires and we were like, Oh, right. zombies. Yeah. Yeah, we've yeah. we've done several episodes on both vampires and zombies. So But these are ghouls. This is our first one on ghouls. Oh, are they? Are they? Are they called ghouls in the movie, not zombies? They call them ghouls in the movie. They never call them zombies. Okay. They never call them vampires, even though they're literally dressed like vampires, <laughs> and they literally yeah, but they're not the vampires. They're not. Yeah, they're electrically uh, controlled ghouls. Right. That's cool. Um, there's a ghoul in Fright Night as well, though. Maybe, arguably, Ooh. people have different ideas of what that thing is. Oh, the um, the partner. Yeah, his face melts off. Yeah. I also love Tor Johnson in this movie. I think he just has such a good ghoul face. Oh, my God. Is that the wrestler? Yeah. He's so fantastic. He's so great. And he plays Inspector Clay and he gets killed and he becomes the third ghoul. And uh, he almost chokes out one of the Martians, which is pretty cool. Speaking of the Martians, why do they call this Plan 9? Is that because Plan 1 through 8 didn't work? <laughs> I, I think so. That's kind of like what it alludes to, right? Because they're like, we're going to try yeah. one more time to fix this before just destroying them. Why is the plan called Plan 9 or why is the movie called Plan 9? Uh, what, let's answer both questions. But first, okay. I was wondering why the plan itself is called Plan 9. I guess it's just the ninth of a series of plans. Yeah, I think it's just a code, like how, how we have codes on Earth as well, like I don't know any of them, but, you know, there are all these, like, police codes and whatnot that mean different things. I think it's just similar to that. As for the movie, it was originally called Grave Robbers from Outer Space. The opening narration, he actually says that. He calls it Grave Robbers from Outer Space. And there are a few conflicting accounts about exactly why it was changed. The cast was very surprised to find out it was changed. No one told them. But one theory is that so the movie was funded by the Baptist Church. And allegedly, the, the Baptist Church may have oppose the idea of calling the movie grave robbers that it was too mm. grisly for them so they they wanted something simpler more family friendly and they said uh edward agreed to plan nine he realized oh that's that's actually a decent title as well and it works with the plot of the movie that makes sense because yeah grave robbing i'm sure is highly unreligious and maybe that's also why they yeah. weren't aren't vampires and ghouls and stuff oh maybe there's also a part in the movie where the the aliens reference God, that they talk about how, yes, we have God too. Right. I'm not sure if Ed Wood himself was religious. I don't, I feel like he wasn't, but I'm not sure about that. 
But that that feels like something that the studio kind of just added in, which mm. I don't mind. It's not it's not too over the top. It it doesn't beat you down with the religious allegory. It is an interesting thing to add though, and to make you think about um, what kind of god or if it's the same god that aliens subscribe to. And I think they do ask them like, "Oh, you have the same god as us, right?" And they're like, "Yes." So I think there is that confirmation of like. God does exist and we know him. We speak to him. They do say they speak to him. So yeah, they're more in tune with like the real order, like the natural order of the universe. And we're kind of like on the wrong path. Well, we're lesser. We're, uh, as they say, stupid. <laughs> One of my favorite parts is when the the cops bust into the UFO and they're talking shit and the Martians are talking about how smart they are and the guy punches them in the face because it just pisses them <laughs> off. And I just think that's such like a realistic reaction. It really is. I feel like this movie almost predicts a lot of our issues with police brutality. Well, not predicts because there are issues with it then too. They just weren't talked about. Yeah. Another scene that is exactly like that is when the UFO shows up and they shoot it like 900 times. Well, and it just goes back to the point of like that the aliens say, you know, how addicted we are to to weapons and to just creating weapons for seemingly no reason just to harness power. Power is a constant theme that comes up in this film, which is really interesting. I mean, we have military and police characters, and we see the military, a captain and a private talking to each other, and the captain confides in the private that the aliens have come to this earth before, and that the military and the government has just you know, erased that from from memory or from history and are just hiding it from mm-hmm. the public eye. And at the end of the conversation, the private is like, Oh, yeah, like this one. There are no aliens, right, sir? And like he's already subscribing to this like mm-hmm. brainwash power of the military and the government, which is really interesting. I like the subtleties of this script. There's a lot going on there, really. It, it is talking very much about government conspiracies and cover-ups and our obsession with guns. Uh, as they're going into that ship at the end, uh, what, what one of the cops says, if a little green man pops out at me, I'm shooting first and asking questions later. Like, they just haven't learned anything. Yeah. Yeah, there's this whole, like, gun-hole cowboy attitude. And uh, the movie's, like, completely critical of that and the human race in Mm -hmm. general. It's so funny if you compare this to a later movie like Mars Attacks, which is cool because uh, Tim Burton made Ed Wood. So Mars Attacks criticizes the other end of all the people, like, holding up peace signs and the Martians just fucking fry them all. Which is awesome. Which is why it's a brilliant <laughs> comedy. <laughs> I know, but Plan 9, I think, it has like a deeper understanding of the human race and how we wouldn't be doing that. We'd be fucking shooting rockets and shit. Right. And I mean, how does the movie end? It's literally the humans like exploding the alien ship and burning them. Burning it, fire is the most like primitive thing you could ever use as a weapon. And that was discovered mm. so long ago. And yet it is the thing that kills off these aliens that are mm. supposed to be, you know, so far advanced beyond our years. Do you think that's like an allusion to Prometheus? The aliens perhaps gave us fire and now we used it oh. to like destroy their envoy? I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's cool. That I also just cool. think of it as fire brings, for me, it brings to mind bombs, which are the, they, they talk about, how, oh, first you get your fire, then you get your clubs, then you get your guns, then you get bigger guns. Then you get your bombs, bigger bombs, and eventually nuclear weapons. It's almost like the bigger our weapons get, they were sort of returned back to fire at some point. 
maybe. I, I think uh, fire also like purifies. So it's this idea of like purging mm. the Martian scum and like just the incident from like human memory since there's like so much is about cover ups. But do you think it's a happy ending? Uh, no. Well, for the Marsh, no, for nobody. Like the Martians even get it and they're they're trying to help, but their plan is a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how ghouls are going to help them, but yeah, it's a great idea. <laughs> What is their plan specifically? Because I think I was a little lost. They want to scare the humans into submission. Is that what that was? I think they want the humans' attention. By resurrecting the dead. Yeah. They want to show humans that they have this power. Like maybe it goes back into religious metaphors even. I mean, what what what's the whole oh. thing? It's Jesus going to return from the grave or whatever. So they're using the fear of God. Yes. But they want they don't want to actually go to war with humanity. They want humanity to listen to them and hear what they're trying to say because they're fucking afraid because human they, they see that we are on the verge of creating this even bigger weapon, the solar night bomb, which will literally destroy the universe. And they know that we have no comprehension of that. So you're saying that they're kind of doing like a mock revelation to kind of get people's attention? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, that's pretty neat. So is it okay if I change the subject slightly? I want to talk about the narrator and just his insanely awesome performance. Yeah, the whole setup of this is really interesting. So the narrator is, uh, his name is Criswell, and he's an actual TV psychic, an actual TV psychic. All right, wait, wait, I got to stop you there. It's the amazing Criswell. Oh, I am sorry. The amazing Criswell, who looks like a character from... The Wizard of Oz, like Ozland with his little <laughs> spit curl kind of thing. He does. Oh yeah, my yeah. God. But yeah, the whole entire movie is set up like it's his TV program and that he's predicting that this is going to happen. Actually, not even predicting, like this is going to happen. And then he narrates the entire film. What do you think Edward was trying to say by putting that as the structure? I think he's trying to make it feel more like a prophecy because this is a real fear. I mean, Maybe we don't need to be worried about aliens literally coming down and telling us what's up, but the fear of the solar night bomb or something similar to that is real. This is during the 1950s. This is during the Cold War. America has had nuclear weapons for years. The Soviet Union now has them as well. The idea of mutually assured destruction is very, very widely spread. And Edward is trying to tell us, hey guys... We're going to fucking kill ourselves if we keep this up. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like the day the Earth stood still. Mm -hmm. It really is. If if you haven't seen the day the Earth stood still, it's 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 kind of the same idea. It's an alien comes down and tells humanity, like, "Hey, uh, we're all afraid of you because you're going to destroy yourselves and probably us as well, and we're trying to help you." And everyone wants to fight them. Everyone wants to combat them, and they're literally just trying to help. Yeah, they also bring a like doomsday machine with them, though, uh, yeah. which is that awesome <laughs> robot. There are so many films like that from around this era. They just discovered the atom bomb, you know, like it's mm -hmm. you can tell that it's resonating with the public. And I know we already covered this a lot in our things episode, which everyone should go back and listen to, um, where we talk about the original, the thing, the thing from another the thing from outer space. The, the thing, thing from, from another world. world. The thing from another world. 
yeah, people were fucking scared of the atom bomb. Yeah, people were really scared. And, uh, you know, this was the time when they used to do bomb drills in classrooms in America. And people used to, like, hide under their desks. Exactly. This movie, though, has a very different takeaway, though, than The Thing from Another World. Because The Thing from Another World kind of concluded that scientists just want to make peace, and that's not going to work, and we need to fight back. Yeah, it was very optimistic. And this movie is very much, fighting back is fucking stupid. You're stupid minds. We we need to, like, pay attention to what we're doing and be more self-conscious and maybe, like, cool it with the weapons a bit. It, it could be possible because if aliens were to attack us, they would probably be so much more advanced than we are. It would be like ants trying to fight a person. Okay, but... I think one of the most brilliant things about that happened in this film um, that I'm in love with so much is that even though the aliens call us so stupid and even though they're like, we are brilliant minds and we are far superior, there's still the moment where they fuck up. And it, I guess it's not human error because they're aliens, but the female alien has the gun and it jams. And mm. oh yeah, and I'm like, see, even if you're years, millions of years ahead of us, you still fuck up. I think it says a lot that like all of us might be a little bit incompetent in the universe. No matter how smart you are, technology can still fail you. Um, which I guess is what technically what they're fearing is going to happen with the sun bomb that they are going to create. It's really interesting, actually, now that I think about it, because the aliens come to Earth and they say, we know your future and we know you're going to create this. And yet the whole entire film takes place in a prediction. So there's like a prediction within a prediction. At the end, he, he, the narrator also says, can you prove it didn't happen? So it's not fully consistent with whether it's a prediction or something that has happened. Yeah, if it's like an actual event that he's disguising as a prediction... But in the beginning, it starts off with Criswell predicts. So he's saying that he's predicting. But that's just the format of his show. So maybe that's just a way of him like actually giving real news. Yeah, he does say future events such as these will affect you in the future. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no way. But then he also says, can you prove that it didn't happen? Someone will pass you in the dark and you will never know it for they will be from outer space. Oh, no. So the thing that he's talking about that you don't know if it's happened is the aliens have already come to Earth and the government's already talked to them. And OK, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's true. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the whole government cover up of the aliens really just plays into what they're afraid of because they're trying to get our attention and the government literally refuses to acknowledge they exist. The government is refusing to acknowledge that there is a problem. And the scariest line in the film is when the uh, military captain or whatever they're called, I don't know military ranks, says every time there's an earthquake or every time there's some natural disaster, I think that it's aliens. How terrifying would that be if you know that there are aliens out there and you think that they're going to attack you at every single turn? <laughs> Which also, I guess, could be the fear of God and that whole conversation. Yeah, yeah. it kind of is. Yeah. Well, this movie plays a lot more into God than I thought it did. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if you uh, if you bite on the UFO stuff, then government officials are literally doing that right now. They're like acting as if there isn't uh, a giant foot just like positioned right above our anthill about to come down. It's kind of like uh, the movie Don't Look Up. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Except instead of an asteroid, it's a uh, alien sneaker. Alien invasion. But also, yes, uh, there was a period when when the government was denying that COVID was a problem. There was a 
they're still largely denying the problems with global warming. Uh, in this era, it was the problems with the potential of nuclear war, which I don't know if the government was really ignoring the challenge of nuclear war, but they certainly weren't doing much about it. Hmm. Right. Well, I mean, the whole Cold War and nuclear war, I think that was on everyone's mind for a big yeah. part of the uh, 20th century. And speaking of current events, I think it's starting to kind of filter into the zeitgeist again. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is we're recording this a month ahead of when you guys are listening to it. But the week that we're recording this is just after Russia has invaded the Ukraine. So you guys might know more about how that shakes out. But right now we are all kind of afraid. It it feels a little bit like the beginning of World War Three. So hopefully it's not. <laughs> I, I don't think it will be. So I think this is a good place to start talking about our next film, which is kind of equally as prophetic and very interesting. David B. Jacobs, could you tell us a little bit about it? Rod is a young, green-friendly salesman who in the same week lands a million-dollar sale and witnesses his company bought out for one billion dollars, a great deal for all involved. He also starts dating his hot Ferrari, model Natalie, who just landed her own deal with Victoria's Secret, but does hold reservations about whether her modeling career will be lucrative. Soon, however, their thoughts of their future will be rendered meaningless when, well, I can't put it better than Amazon's description. Birdemic shock and terror is a true cult phenomenon. A platoon of eagles and vultures attacked the residents of a small town. Many people died. It's not known what caused the flying menace to attack. It's probably global warming. Two people managed to fight back, but will they survive? Bird death. Written and directed by James Wynn. So this movie also has, it's an, it's an incredible independent film, and it has like many very specific artistic choices, um, of so many of them being in the special effects and in the, in the design of the film. Uh, can you talk a bit about what your guys' favorite independent artistic choices were sound design oh, sound yeah. design sound design sound design i love how it cuts in and out there's just such i don't know like a confident decision such a brave decision to kind of throw us off course like as if he's mimicking the weather of global warming how we just don't know what to expect at the next no. moment i didn't think about that it gives the whole movie this sort of uncanny feel, which I think works uh, very well with, I mean, it's a horror movie. You want it to feel uncanny and strange. Yeah, it was terrifying. I don't have a source on this, but I, I, I feel like it must have been an influence on Sound of Metal, which came out uh, a couple of years ago. Oh, oh, it could have been. That one's about a drummer who's going deaf. So they use a lot of the same techniques specifically to make you feel like you're going deaf. Very much how the human race is basically turning, I guess, a blind eye, but maybe also turning a deaf ear to mm -hmm. the voices of the revolution of climate change. The cries of the birds, if you will. Uh, one of my favorite touches is actually the use of overexposure. It, it, it reminds me kind of if you, you guys have seen Darren Aronofsky's Pie, right? Yes. Yeah. He oh. plays around a lot with exposure in that movie as well. I think he either overexposed and underdeveloped or he underdeveloped and then overexposed the footage because it was on film. Uh, this was not on film, but when uses a similar technique in order to sort of make you feel the heat of it, mm -hmm. like it also kind of looks a bit like do the right thing where it's all these warm colors. Wind just 
flashes the camera with all this light and just drowns you in light to make you feel the literally the global warming. The planet is fucking hot. Mm. I kind of feel like he was channeling a little bit of Bollywood there. Mm, That's interesting. I like the way they speak to each other in this movie and just how realistic their relationship is. When they're on their date, I feel like I was just kind of like people watching a date happening at a table next to me. And it was going great. I'm like, wow. I actually wrote down some of his lines and was like, I'm going to use these (laughs) (laughs) on my wife. (laughs) (laughs) I hope on your wife. Becky's listening like, Rob's going to use these. Wait, what? On my wife. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I also just like connected so much with the characters that when they all died, I felt bad. Especially um, when they go and they find those people dead over there. Their the friends. Road. And then they like, oh, yeah. they pick up the little girl and her brother or something. And I feel so bad for them. All they want is a happy meal. I know they were under that car for so long. It also kind of plays into, I mean, I think that this is pretty obvious, but you have your main couple and then they, it's almost like they're adopting children. So you, you sort of create this unorthodox family over the course of the film. Which yeah. Was so precious. It's very touching. Very yes. touching. And all he said, he said he wanted a loving partner and a happy family. The kids wanted a happy meal. I mean, that's, you know, they all get what they want in the end. She doesn't get her modeling career, but she said, you know, that's okay with her. I'm not sure about that, but I think we can return to that. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. One of the things I, I think is really interesting about the bird effects is that they're very clearly manufactured by man. And I think that's a response to the global warming, how this mm. problem is manufactured oh. by people. And that's oh. why it was so important that the birds looked so separate from the rest of the nature of the film, if you will, because that's mankind eradicating itself. It's not that the birds were like angry. These are birds manufactured via our pollution. Oh, I love hmm. that so much. That's brilliant. I hadn't even thought of that. I, 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 I definitely tapped into the uncanny feeling of them. Uh, even when you like see a few birds that aren't attacking earlier in the film, it's very uncanny valley and you're like i i'm a little worried about these birds right now they look kind of strange when i walked outside i swear i kept like seeing those birds and when i went to bed that night i kept hearing them that's effective horror right there oh and then the makeup oh we didn't even talk about the special effects makeup yet because then we see him and i think his throat is slashed and then other characters throughout the film we see i think there's like a acid something that splashes on them their eyes get gouged out a lot of slashed throats a lot of scrapes they they do a really good job of like hurting these people which i feel like i appreciate because so many horror films are too clean you can very much see the influence of classic cinema in this film and how the director was just like I mean, it is in a way a love story to so many of the the thrillers from actually the 1950s and 60s. The obvious pull here is, of course, the birds, which I feel like this film is such a brilliant homage to it. There are so many moments where I'm like, the birds, the birds. The, and I'm like, but it, they, he adapts it so well to a modern society and like gives it a different meaning. Also, I think a significant difference between the two movies is that in The Birds, there is absolutely zero motive given for the birds at all, and we really have no idea about it. Whereas Birdemic, it's heavily implied that they're attacking as a result of global warming. Mm -hmm. This movie also had a really rocky production cycle, 
and it was very interesting. One of the things was like James Wynn actually pulled up a really cool car to Sundance. The movie was rejected by Sundance because they Sundance, they don't get it. They, you need big yeah. stars or you don't get it. They're just a bunch of yups anyway. But Wynn didn't take that. He managed to book a bar in the area and got the movie to screen there. And to market it, he dressed up his car in a bunch of model birds. And he like put all these model birds on his van and drove around Sundance. <laughs> drove around Main Street advertising the movie and handing out flyers. Yeah, and he had the um the speakers on the car too, so all you heard were bird yep. screeches. Oh. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. I love this like rebellious well, first of all, yeah, fuck Sundance attitude. Love it. But oh my god, so good. So good. He even had the balls. He uh he he intentionally misspelled the title of the movie on the car. He painted Bidemic, which is like you know, he's trying to make people think about it. He's grabbing your attention with the misspelling. And then you have to think like, what? What is that? Oh, is it? Is it birdemic? What's birdemic? And then, of course, some people did wind up being like, well, that that detail specifically is what pulled them in. That they're like, we've got to go and watch this movie now. And then they fucking loved it, obviously. And it's the the audience members themselves who managed to drive the movie until it got a distribution pickup. Yeah, which actually, so we did watch a short documentary, which was Vice, actually, um, Vice, who we also talked about in the Invitation in the Sacrament (laughs) episode. So great. Um, And the Vice reporter is actually, he was working in film distribution at the time that he started filming this documentary and is actually the one that picked up for Demick for distribution. So everything that you just said, David, is so interesting because that he said, I saw the sign that was misspelled and I immediately needed to see that movie. So it was obviously a very effective choice there. And we'll, we'll drop the link to that in, in the show notes because I loved watching that doc. <laughs> it's really, yeah, it's like a 25 minute documentary and it's really great and it gives you a lot of insight into when. Mm-hmm. So when gives a lot of advice about combating global warming throughout this movie. Can we talk a bit about that? Go through some of the specific examples that he uses. Yes, please. I, I know he talks about like driving cars less and living in the woods. He has a character who lives in the woods in yes. like a tree house. And that guy's not attacked by the birds because he's cool. Even before the birds attack, the main character Rod is very uh, conscious of his carbon footprint. He talks about electric cars and hybrid cars. Uh, he repla- he gets solar panels for his house. Which actually is a very interesting thing if I could cut you off right there. Because that scene where he has the technician, the solar panel technician come to his house and is like, okay, I'll install this for you. It's going to be $20,000. And he's like, what the fuck? Why? Remember when that was, I'm sure it's still a thing, but I remember when solar panels were starting to become really popular, but they were so expensive. And everyone is like, why is saving the planet so out of reach for so many people? I It was a brilliant choice to add that in there, which of course then compels Rod to create a cheaper option. Yes, which is still three to $500. And he kind of plays it up like that's not that much, but I mean- it is. That's still a lot of money. Three to five hundred dollars for a solo panel? I think it was per panel or something. Oh wow. That's way cheaper than it is now, I believe. It is way cheaper. Yeah. And there definitely should be cheaper ways to go about this. 
I actually have a friend who um he works as an engineer for a company that creates it's it's a concrete kind of replacement, but it's for uh instead of concrete slabs or whatnot, they they use a system that actually uses carbon dioxide to create the brick. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a replacement for bricks or slabs of some kind like if you were doing a driveway or whatnot so you'd actually be it's a green solution drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to create these bricks and so many of those things exist or have been discovered but are not accessible by everybody most of the time because of the high price tag it's kind of like the same problem with the medical industry and how it's not um profitable to come up with cures Oh, mm. yeah, that could be a whole thing. <laughs> this always hurts me in the stock market because I'll find out about a medical advancement and be like, that's going to be huge and I'll invest in it, but it never goes gets off the ground because it's too effective. It won't generate enough money. Exactly. Like one of the ones I'm thinking of right now is like Derm Tech, which is like revolutionary in being able to find like skin cancers. It's a patch you put on. You don't even have to do a full biopsy. And it's like 99% effective or some shit. But for some reason, it's not generating the kind of money you think it would because it's like too good. It's like more effective than the other way. So they would make less money off patients. Like male birth control. So I'm going to make an argument, but I'm not going to tell you right away if I actually agree with this or not. I just want to present Famous this David first. line. So there is an argument to be made that this movie is actually a little bit hypocritical in that we're talking about all of these issues with saving the environment that largely stem from capitalism, that it costs money in order to be more green conscious. It's also like we haven't mentioned this, but the corporations are largely responsible for the issues. And this movie isn't necessarily against capitalism. So it it kind of feels a little bit like it's blaming individuals and not the corporations and the system. What do you guys think of that? Well, I think it's just a load of bullshit. But I also, uh, I, I don't I don't think just blaming capitalism per se is like a strong argument. I mean, I think you could say like, hey, a lot of these like profit margins are driving the problems of like climate change, but That doesn't mean that they're solely responsible. I mean, what you need to do is have some smart entrepreneurs come up with like profitable ways of fixing the problem or just say, you know, maybe your profit's not as important as fixing the problem, which is a government responsibility. There's also countries out there that don't have as free of markets that are contributing largely to the global climate crisis and like developing countries that don't have any GDP and are contributing largely to the climate problem. So one of the things that the video you sent me said was that a lot of the carbon dioxide created is actually through the creation of roads themselves rather than the cars. It might actually be more carbon dioxide through like road work, like laying tar and all that than cars driving and burning gasoline. So what do you think about that, David? Yeah, and I think that's in the Kyrgyzstan video. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. We'll have a link to it in the description. But you're right, I shouldn't immediately throw the blame to capitalism. Other countries with other systems have not necessarily done better at combating climate change than we have. So there is some systemic fault, but it's not necessarily capitalism specifically that is to blame for once. So I can't miss a chance to talk about my wife. So she's from the country of Bhutan, Mm. which is the only carbon negative nation in the planet. But to kind of like throw that out, one of the reasons for that is that they actually export their waste to India. Oh. Now, even if they didn't, they probably would still be carbon negative, but they still lay roads and they import 
Indian labor to do so, and they make have the tar. But one of the reasons why they're carbon negative is because a they most of their power is from hydroelectric power, which they can do because they're like in the Himalayas, and two is that they have seventy two percent forest coverage. Now, both of those things might not be viable in a lot of places. Like, for instance, you're not going to get 72% forest coverage in Kansas, and you're not going to get hydroelectric power that's sustainable in New York City. But there are other methods of gaining power. So it's like alternate energy sources and different ways of creating roads and whatnot. So to go back to all the road stuff, it, it is very much true that the things that we regularly talk about as contributing to climate change are largely negligible. Uh, like in the movie, there's a moment where I think the character's name is Rick. Uh, after seeing an inconvenient truth, he says he's going to immediately exchange his car for a hybrid the following day. That's actually bad. That actually increases your carbon footprint um, because the cost of creating the car is more than all the gas you're going to emit over your car's lifetime. So you should actually uh, keep your car until it runs out. And then, yeah, getting a hybrid or an electric car is going to be better at that point in time. A used one's even better. But you shouldn't be exchanging your car before its natural lifespan is over. Oh, so what you're saying is just making a car itself. Yes. Any car just causes a lot, right? In yes. In the same way that making a road. Yeah, okay. The manufacturing cost is insane. Um, there's also things that, I mean, the movie doesn't talk about uh, the meat industry at all. The meat industry is huge in contributing to climate change. Right. Mm. But at the same time, a lot of the conversation around this has focused on blaming individuals for climate change. Like, oh, everyone should just become vegetarian or whatnot. And I mean, I am a vegetarian, but... Mm. Blaming the individuals only takes the focus away from the corporations. In fact, what these videos I've sent have also talked about is how it was actually BP oil which popularized the concept of the carbon footprint and mm -hmm. appropriated it. Like originally, it was just a scientific paper that someone wrote to discuss this idea. And then BP oil appropriated that in order to blame individuals to say, Basically, it is your fault that this is happening. You need to do better. And the subliminal is don't blame us. And it worked. It's interesting because I, I just bringing it back to the movie, I, I don't feel like they really blame the individuals more so that they blame the zeitgeist, really. Like they're saying like everyone is kind of at fault here. We're kind of just, we're not talking about it enough. I think the argument is less about like who's doing what and more so of like, why are we not talking about this? Why are we not like, yeah, why isn't this more uh, uh, in our conscious? But this also goes back into what we were saying earlier about how combating climate change is largely a privilege for those who are well off because mm -hmm. the vegetarian options always cost more at restaurants. Mm -hmm. They do. Yeah. The fake meats always cost more. The electric cars, the hybrid cars cost more. All these options cost more. And right. if you can't afford it, then that's not that's not your fault. So I went into the movie. From my memory, I was remembering it being more hypocritical. But after watching it again and after thinking about it, I feel like the movie is very, very much aware of all this nuance. And it's actually a lot more critical of its characters than it appears. I mean, they keep asking, why are the birds attacking? The birds are attacking because all these things they're doing aren't working. 
Mm-hmm. And once mm-hmm. shit hits the fan, they're immediately like, forget about our hybrid car. We're going to drive around in this massive van. We're going to be shooting at the environment with our machine guns. Like they're yeah. very much they're they're drinking out of plastic bottles and whatnot. Like they're not as conscious of the environment as they appear. And they are drenched in their privilege and their blind eye to like, like, like they're very much, we're going to solve everything and they're actually not really doing anything to solve the issue. I agree with a lot of that. And uh, it seems like the one chance they have to like halt things is when they meet that guy in the woods and they could just go play in the treehouse, and everything would be fine. Like hunky dory. So I'm super confused by the ending. Why the fuck did the birds leave? Yeah. I don't know. They just like found greener pastures and the birds just aren't there. I don't know. Or did the birds just like do enough damage and it was just their their time's over? They're just a warning. They're just an omen. We don't see the birds leaving everything. They're not necessarily done attacking. We just see them leaving this specific scenario in a specific time. Mm. Mm. If I recall correctly, their car is out of gas. Mm -hmm. They're now fishing. They're making their own food. They're, they've stopped polluting. Oh, yeah. And they do say they're only attacking people at like gas stations and mm-hmm. people who are actually doing bad to the environment. Yeah, I would agree with that. That makes sense to me. So could I say that they stop trying to eradicate humans when they halt being the virus on the world? Mm-hmm. So the birds are kind of like the antibodies trying to eradicate the virus that's humankind? I'd agree with that, but then that's when the mountain lion comes. As we see as an example of the man who lives in a treehouse. He's not attacked by the birds, but he is attacked by the mountain lions. No, he gets out of the way, so the mountain lion, he's fine with that. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. He just like let the mountain lion do its thing, you know? It's like part of the ecosystem. But that's kind of like in Plan 9, right? Like, we have the antibody show up, where in Plan 9, it's the aliens. But in Birdemic, it's the birds, and they come to eradicate the virus that is humankind. Speaking of humans as a virus, you had this idea of like a great filter. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we talked about this in our episode on the Invisible Man and the Tingler. Uh, So the great filter is this idea that the reason we haven't made contact with aliens is that at a certain point as a race becomes more technologically advanced, they tend to eradicate themselves very shortly thereafter, either through nuclear war, like Plan 9 is alluding to, or through global warming, like Birdemic is alluding to. So you're saying that there are, we don't, we're not in contact with aliens because they have already eradicated them, themselves. Yes, and we're going to soon. Or it's like Mass Effect, And the Reapers come and eradicate intelligent life when they reach a certain point technologically every 50,000 years or so. You made that exact same point in the other episode. (laughs) I know. That's why we're coming back, right? So like Plan 9, no, but that's actually what they're doing. Yeah. It's humankind has reached a point where we're we're creating technology that we don't have the uh, sophistication to use or the moral compass to... uh, direct in a certain way so we actually endanger the entire universe right and then in that sense the martians are the reapers yeah in the the great equalizer so the martians are the reapers in plan nine and the birds are the reapers in birdemic and and they they literally are you shall reap what you sow the biblical saying 
the mm. birds literally are reaping us because we've sowed the seeds of pollution or destruction or whatever. And uh, we're too blind to the uh, the ramifications of our actions. We're too stupid. Uh, one thing I did notice, though, that I probably should have mentioned earlier is that Birdemic does comment on capitalism. Because do you remember when they're buying like water from the convenience store? And the guy's like, that's going to be $100. That was gas. And yes, I, I actually took that as a metaphor for the wars over oil. Yeah, it probably is. And I think it. Yeah, actually, that's a great point. <laughs> I think it also is like commenting on how people tend to take advantage of like situations, like how we're exploiting the environment. Now they're going to take advantage of us for trying to do the right thing. Earlier, you had mentioned, Devin, how everyone gets what they want. The reason I said that I don't think that's the case is because all that money they have is useless now. We're in a post-apocalyptic world. It doesn't matter that he closed a, a million dollar deal. It doesn't matter that she's got a deal with Victoria's Secret. None of that stuff is even going to happen now. Right, yeah, but that's I, that's not what I said, though. I, I didn't say that they wanted that stuff. I said in the end they wanted that partner and that family. Like, that was something that they were going to yes. accept. Um, and that's what they ended up getting. And actually finding, hopefully, a question mark we'll see in Birdemic 2, um, more happiness through that life path than the capitalistic one. So do you think these movies are optimistic? I would say neither one is very optimistic. No. <laughs> uh, maybe you can make an argument for like Birdemic a little bit, but like Plan 9 is pretty much, you people are idiots and this is going to happen. And we literally have a fortune teller seeing the future. Yeah, but at the same time, like <laughs> neither are optimistic. I mean, Plan Nine's saying exactly what you said, Rob, like no matter what, we're going to reach it. But Birdemic is saying that there's a chance that if we stop mm. using water bottles and cars and et cetera, the birds will stop. You know, like there is that that hopefulness. I, I agree with you. I think it definitely is more optimistic. But this is piggybacking off this idea. Do you guys think that humankind is kind of a virus on the planet? And I suppose with that idea, what do you do with viruses? You kind of have to eradicate them. So is there a way for us to like unvirus ourselves or like should we just genocide the human race? Oh, my God. Wait, <laughs> Because I was going to agree with the human race as a virus to planet Earth, but I don't think that we should just do a genocide of the entire human race. You just loaded that question to set me up in a very awful position. <laughs> I mean, that's the way I view that viewpoint. I think that if you're going to call humankind a virus, that's how you take care of viruses. So maybe it's not the greatest comparison word. It's not because saying we're a virus on the planet does not necessarily lead to that needs to be stopped. You you could have the viewpoint that we're a virus on the planet, but we should give ourselves a chance. Like you can have that mm -hmm. viewpoint. And I think I agree with you, Devin. I think that that's the point that Birdemic is trying to make that Birdemic kind of argues that we still have our capacity for love for uh, humanity and that that has the ability to save us. I think plan nine does not make that argument. I mean, every relationship in that movie is kind of doomed and it, it doesn't really seem to differentiate between whether characters are in love or not. It does. That doesn't help them. Bill Lugosi. I mean, that whole beautiful scene outside the house is just all about the grief. He feels of the loss of his wife. That doesn't save him though. He winds up dying shortly after and they are the ones who are resurrected. So you guys are saying that humankind is kind of like herpes where the initial flare up is real bad, but then after a while you can just kind of ignore it. No, but no, you can't ignore it. it. The bad, yeah, that's that's the bad thing. No, no, no. You can like kind of ignore it, like after you like. No. Yeah, but if you take the right steps, 
I, I get what you're trying to go for, but I don't think that it's working. Yeah, I think what you're trying to go for is literally not what we're saying. <laughs> no, no. So what you're saying is we're more like AIDS or like HIV, that if you take the right medication, like a, a strict regimen, then it can kind of go unnoticed. And no. We're not going to damage the world. No. We're saying that we're doomed either way. Yeah, pretty much. Oh. Even if we do you know, stop whatever carbon footprint we have or reduce it or blah, blah, blah. There's going to be something else. And and the theory that David was talking about is like, there's something that like the weapons of mass destruction, like we talk about in plan nine, like something is going to kill us and something is going to kill the planet or the universe. It sucks. But no matter what we do, we can reduce one, but I'm sure there'll be another one coming our way that we just haven't even thought of yet. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try, but yeah. <laughs> but if, but if you both think we're doomed, that, that's pretty fatalistic. I already talked about a dark force theory in the last episode. We talked about this, the one where we talked about uh, Mass Effect. There could be aliens out there, but they're just hiding from us. If you had the weapons to destroy a post light light travel civilization, um, by the time they realized you were attacking them, years would have passed, and they don't have the time to retaliate. Mm. So, first strike is just that much more advantageous. So it's prudent for them to hide. So maybe there's not a great filter. Maybe it's just a dark forest and all the aliens are hiding because they're afraid that you'd shoot a faster than light speed missile at them that would explode their entire civilization. Or a solar or night bomb. Or a solar or night bomb, yeah. But yeah, in the event of an actual nuclear strike in the real world, from the time that a president of a country uh, was informed of the incoming missiles, they would have exactly 10 minutes to decide whether or not to retaliate. Oh, yeah. So that's terrifying. <laughs> oh, I'm really happy that uh, we're talking about all this really scary actual world life shit uh, in the middle of a war. So that's fun. Yeah, I don't think that the movie is going with the Thanos argument, which is incredibly, terribly flawed population will just increase again like it's overpopulation is not the issue it will just increase again you can't control that also thanos could have doubled the resources just saying which also wouldn't have solved anything because you still need to distribute the resources we have enough food to feed everyone anyway oh my god so now it's time for my favorite part of the show which is the review section where we do our bone reviews a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between starting us off this week is david b jacobs I love Plan 9. It's so impactful. It has a lot of meaningful things to say. I love the performances from those involved. And of course, I'm a big Bela Lugosi fan. I mean, we all know going back to our, our trivia episode that we did Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. I love Bela Lugosi. I think he's fantastic. Uh, his Dracula performance was in my honorable mentions, I think, for our greatest performances in horror history. It feels so much like a love letter to him and to his work and to like sci-fi and horror as a whole. That scene outside that house is just really fucking gorgeous and meaningful. I'm going to give it three bones. I mean, it's not, it's not my favorite movie. It's, it's not quite as good as the day to earth is still, which is the same thing a little bit better, but I still love this movie. It's fantastic. Devin, what do you think? I agree. I think this movie, first of all, was just so beautiful in, in so many ways, in like a very quiet sense, had so much to say, again, in a quiet sense, and just so ahead of its time. For me, what I really loved about it, too, is just the beautiful artistry and the love letter to cinema. You can really feel the passion that Edward has for film 
uh, in every single frame and decision of this movie. And you can see its influence in independent film, in independent horror, and horror in just the horror genre in general for the rest of cinematic time. It's a wonderful movie. I enjoyed basically every moment of it. Ah, I, I can't give it four, so I'm I'm just going to give it three and a half. It still had its, its issues, but three and a half bones. Nice. You guys are completely insane. This is the send-off to the horror legend, Dracula himself, Bela Lugosi, in Dracula clothing. Four bones, nuff said. David. I mean, fair, man. <laughs> so you're talking about Birdemic now. I mean, I... Like, one of my favorites. I've watched this movie so many times. I think it has a lot of meaningful stuff to say as well. These are both very, like, insightful and provocative movies that are really talking about the important issues. I love the experimental qualities of Birdemic. It's also, we kind of didn't touch on this very much, but it's a lot of fun. Like, it's really fun to watch. The dialogue is often just hilarious and, like, really funny. It, I mean, there's a part where, like, it's it's almost making fun of the characters a bit. So he's driving along the road, and he's like, Ah, uh, there's some dead people over there. Let's go look and see if there's any survivors. And I'm just like, I love that just subtle, dry humor is fantastic. It, it's, it's a really good movie. I'm going to give it three and a half bones. Damn, damn. Rob, do you want to go? Birdemic is beyond review status because it's a movie in a realm of its own mm. so for the first time in cadaver dog's history i'm gonna say it's also a masterpiece four bones whoa what? it's a total of eight bones oh my from master rob we've never had that in all of our episodes we've never had someone give both movies four bones wow, wow. that's awesome i know i know we almost have enough bones to make a skeleton now <laughs> oh shit Devin, what do you think? Well, I'm I'm also going high here. Not quite four for me, but three. I think for all the same reasons that I loved Plan 9, I loved Birdemic, love Letter to Cinema. The Hitchcock, I mean, come on. Mm. How can you not like a movie that is an homage to Hitchcock? So many brilliant things about global warming, which are so important to have. The message is so important. The passion is just there. It's so much fun. I agree, David. This movie is fun to watch. It is funny at certain points. You know, I've I've watched this movie and every single time I've loved watching it. Some of my favorite memories are watching this movie with my brother. Hi, I hope you're listening. And I, I have to, it, it's just, it, it sparks a joy in me. So three bones. I'm very excited to say that Birdemic 3 is currently filming. We'll be able to see that pretty soon. I'm, I'm excited oh for God. that. And it's called Sea Eagle. Yes, yeah, Sea Eagle. Birdemic 3, Sea Eagle. You can also check out Alan Baugh, the, the main actor, is currently in the Book of Boba Fett, where he plays Nutcracker Biker on Speed Bike. Wow. I haven't seen the show, but for those who have, please let us know how he is in, in that show. All right, well, that's it for this week. And before we go, we have something to tell you. April Fool's. <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. Birdemic's a piece of shit. Half a bone. Goodbye. <laughs> I stand by my reviews. You see? You see? You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid.